fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling open Hollywood's crypt to review Paul Verhoeven's classic Showgirls. Yay? Yay! Yay! <laughs> so everybody's got AIDS and shit. Everybody got AIDS and shit. The the real cause for yay is uh, we watched this together. Yay! Yeah, which isn't uh, going to always be the case considering we're three states away. Yes, but it was a, it was a real delight to see your face while we watched this movie, and it was a real pleasure at the first showing of bare breastage in this movie for you to just go, oh, and I'm so glad I was in the room to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, this is a titillating movie. <laughs> hey. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, I gave you life as we watched this movie, me for the first time together. It was something yes. else. Indeed. And did you want to tell the people what this movie's about? Yeah. For those of you who uh, skipped the movie voluntarily or otherwise, and I would understand voluntarily, uh, Showgirls is about Nomi, a young drifter who comes to Las Vegas to become a dancer and soon sets about a clawing and pushing her way to become the top of the Vegas showgirl circuit. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what happens in the movie, among other things. That is. Among among other things, do where where to start with this movie, Andy? Well, so the synopsis makes me want to talk about Nomi as a character serves as sort of this dark edgy version of the classic musical heroine i'm talking about thoroughly modern millie or oh gosh there's one an ex-girlfriend of mine did and i can't remember now the the girl who who comes to new york with nothing but two suitcases and a dream and sets off that she is going to become the biggest broadway star the movie begins with Nomi coming to Vegas with nothing but a suitcase, a switchblade, and a dream. Yep. And she hitches a ride with a guy who she surprisingly lets her guard down probably three minutes into them riding in the car together. Which is just surprising given the fact that she starts it by putting a switchblade to his throat and saying, I'm not someone you want to mess around with. Right. And then she lets she lets go really quickly. Right. She she has this sort of paper tiger thing going on where she draws a switchblade, makes it clear, "Hey man, I'm no mark. I'm not going to take any crap from you." And uh, I mean, he threatens to kick her out of the car and that's what gets her to sort of chill out. But as soon as she chills out, like as soon as the switchblade goes away, so does Nomi's facade of not being a total rube and somebody who can be tricked and i want to run down the sequence of events of like the first five minutes of the movie because it really will give people who have not seen showgirls and are listening to our review first 
what I feel is a better idea of one of the core problems of this movie. So from start, Nomi gets picked up by a guy. She lets her guard down. She begins to befriend him. They drive into Vegas. He gives her like a quarter. She instantly hits the jackpot. And then within like the next, I don't know, half an hour, he goes away and she loses all of that money. She just got out of the slot machine. Mm-hmm. Immediately realizes, oh, the guy's not here anymore. Discovers she's been robbed. Has a freak out breakdown about that. And then meets what this movie would like you to think is the only good person in all of Las Vegas, a guardian angel, a savior who literally like puts up with her bull crap and eventually takes her in. This happens within the span of like an hour real time and maybe 10 minutes movie time. Right. And that bizarre pacing is this movie's death knell. <laughs> it's what starts the downward slope. Yeah. Yeah. This movie starts out low and grabs a shovel. Yeah. It's fall down the stairs. You might say. Hey. hey. <laughs> Self-referential. Well, and I would like to argue. So why is Molly, who's a local, she's downtown. And it's established that she's not downtown for work. She's not getting off work. She's downtown to eat. If you're a local to Las Vegas, why are you on the strip if you're not working? Like, she's just there hanging out. And she's like, oh, there's this girl beating up my car. Here, let me buy her a burger. Like, this girl is beyond. She is the ultimate of, like, angel in the house. Like, I'm such a good person that what happens to her later, you're like, oh, of course, she's the person that we're going to make an example of in the movie. Yeah, this... Uh, so this isn't Toxic Avenger bad. No. But it's definitely still bad. <laughs> and in in some ways, that's worse when you look at the fact that this was supposed to be a big Hollywood blockbuster smash hit. For it to be as universally reviled and... Not to get ahead, but it, it's it's cult because people hate watch this movie. That's almost worse considering the effort that went into this. And the thing that really wrecks this movie is its god-awful, bizarre script and Paul Verhoeven's bizarre direction towards his actors. The thing with Molly, this is a slight spoiler for anybody who is for some reason listening with us this far, but still wants to see the movie on their own and since i'm giving a spoiler warning i'll also give a a trigger warning hey seriously last chance to pause if you do not want to hear a frank analysis of a rape scene Um, if that's the case go ahead and skip to the 11 30 mark and just be a little warned for the rest of the podcast but that's the bulk of it thanks you know molly's rape at the end is such a over-the-top, ham-fisted, crummy metaphor that she is the she is the paragon of goodness and integrity and purity. She is the only character in the movie who is not bad in some way, shape, or form. And she is sacrificed because of it. Yeah. And... 
the the over the beat you over the head symbolism of that as well as very heavy-handed attempts to delve into the issues of the early 90s everybody got aids and shit mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's just like like that's this this is a hollywood level movie with a a 12 year old script like this is what happens if you tell a 12 year old to write a movie about las vegas he he remembers the time he saw annie and remembers that one girl from uh the the nyc song and thinks about what little he knows about vegas casinos and boobies and he rolls with it andy what happened to you when you were 12 um i was moving around a lot that makes sense because there, this is the second time also when we brought up Toxic Avenger, you're like, yeah, this is like a 12-year-old's like, only a 12-year-old could make up this movie. This is what a 12-year-old wants to see. And then now you're like, this is what a 12-year-old wants to see in Vegas. And I'm like, what, what, what happened in your life when you were 12, bud? Let's talk about this. Uh, yeah, I moved around a lot and I'm pretty sure that's when I like started, started puberty. So that, oh, yeah, sure. there you that go. makes sense. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. We didn't have to delve too deep to figure out that one. <laughs> no. Different places. I think that's that is a perfect lead in to our segment. It didn't age well. Social justice. One, two, three. I wanna be PC. It's just the way to be for me and you. So this is it didn't age well. The showgirls edition. And there's so right. much why this didn't age well. Yeah. There's a graphic rape, as you said, very ham-fisted, very much like I've seen less graphic rapes on Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's graphic. It's malicious. It is the peak of like masculine male gaze at that situation like mm. like not only is molly raped molly is brutally gang raped and then we 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 next see her with blood running down her leg and just beaten all to hell for no actual reason like that's the right. thing more than graphic it is pointless both in the meta context of what Paul Verhoeven and writer Joe Esteras were trying to tell us. It's, it's pointless for that, but it's also pointless within the context of the story because she's raped by Andrew Carver, who is a, a, a fill in the blank pop star that she spends the whole movie, like being so excited to meet and idolized and was like 30 seconds away from slipping off her dress and banging him anyway. But it turns out he's a sadistic rapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it 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 horribly aged well for that fact. It 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 didn't age well because of some racist stereotyping. Yeah, with the Asian businessmen partway through the movie at the boat show. Yeah, partway through the movie, you you find a caricature of a I want to say they said he was from Thailand, a Taiwanese businessman who loves big old American boobies and. This didn't wind up being the case, but partway through the movie, I'm sitting here looking at the two black characters, James and Molly. And until James uh, 
re- reveals his character flaws and shows that he is a bit of a womanizer. You know, there's there's sort of this narrative that the only two black characters are the only two morally superior. You know, Molly what? is the other black character and she is morally superior. She's known as what is quote unquote the magical negro. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's she comes in, she swoops in, she solves Nomi's housing problem, she solves Nomi's employment problem. She solves all of Nomi's problems without being given the dignity of her own storyline. Yeah. Other yeah. other than her rape story. Which is so much more Nomi's. Right. Because Nomi the rape is seemingly just happens to Molly, but Nomi is the one to solve it. So even even again, the rape doesn't even get to fully be Molly's. Which is like, who wants their rape to be theirs? No one, but it does even that doesn't get to be her own storyline. Sure. It's it's a very dated movie, and you know, I made the joke about it before, but like they the people who made this movie were really trying to like talk about the issues of the 90s you know the aids crisis the cultural rise of homosexual people as a whole the more prominent profile that they were having they were starting to get in the late 80s early 90s they they sort of touch on drug abuse you know crystal connors is is constantly snorting blow out of her little cocaine ring Nomi, it's revealed, is a former crack addict. But, like, none of these issues land. Right. And we're beaten over the head with the the symbolism and the... Just the, hey, hey, this is a thing. Hey, this is a problem. We're going to have this character talk about why this is a problem. Isn't it such a problem, guys? Right. They're, they're telling their audience without actually showing their audience. Like, for example, the line that I started the show by making fun of, everybody got AIDS and shit. They say that, they drop it in, but we don't ever see a single character with AIDS. The closest we see to a male gay character is the one overly homo... um, homocentric dancer. No, the dancer who's like... I wouldn't want to touch her pussy anyway. So we're That's all like, right. ha, 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 ha. it's just over the top. Right. And, and so I'd like to take a minute to look at Paul Verhoeven because he played a massive role in the making of this movie. He didn't write the script, which is the only thing that saves him from me placing all of the blame on him. But <laughs> he was very involved with the making of this movie and, for anyone who doesn't know, Paul Verhoeven was born in the Netherlands. He is a very, very, very Dutch director. And Paul Verhoeven's filmography has such highlights as Robocop, Starship Troopers, Basic Instinct, Total Recall. Do any of these movies have anything in common with Showgirls? Kind of over the top? Kind of over the top and, and boobs. Like, he's notorious for having having full frontal nudity in his movies. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, to be a story about something that is pretty American, 
Like, I, I, I feel Vegas is an American cultural landmark, just as a thing. I, I wonder how he got involved with this. I wonder why he felt the need to make this. He knew something was up with this movie because he directed it under an alias. Really? Yeah, uh, instead of his real name, Paul Verhoeven directed Showgirls under the name Jan Jansen. Which, oh, that's not fishy at all. Come sure. On. Come on, Paul. <laughs> that's like me as a Swedish descendant person being like, yeah, my name is Jon Jon Hansen. Exactly. <laughs> what the hell? So I, I, I look at that and there are so many, like, there, there were so many times while watching this that I was trying to f- solve why is this movie bad? And... The, the insane script and Paul Verhoeven's direction are a big part of it. And I just, I, I want to bring up his background to kind of clue everybody in on my theory that just like he wasn't the guy to make this movie. So when I was reading about the movie, another thing that jumped out to me was that the gentleman who wrote the script, who is Andy, help me out. Joe Esteras. Okay, Joe Esteras. And Verhoeven would sit over the script and they said it was really funny. They said in retrospect that they were like, we don't understand. Every page of that script was so funny. How can you not laugh at the line? Something, there's some line in the movie like, what does it feel like not to be cummed on every night or something like that? And they were like, how can you listen to that line and not think that's funny? And I'm like, uh, I very, don't know. Very easily. <laughs> very because... easily. That's not funny to me. We took it as like a, a damning critique of the sex industry and a, a, right. a cry for help of somebody. And so they also, in writing this movie, they researched and did extensive interviews with over 200 real life Las Vegas strippers and incorporated parts of their stories into the screenplay. So one of these things is not like the other. Either you want the script to be serious and a real examination of exploitation of strippers in Las Vegas, or you want this movie to be funny. I don't think those two things can realistically coexist outside of really, really, really dark comedy. And that's not, this doesn't strike me as a dark comedy. It just strikes me as dark. I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, I'm, we watched it a little under a week ago and I'm trying to recall a single funny intentionally funny bit that isn't just Elizabeth Berkeley fighting with a tray of french fries that I like places at. okay places <laughs> like which I, all four of us laughed at by the way oh yeah but laughed at not laughed with laughed at not with yes exactly Um, Or viciously taking a bite of her hamburger. But again, it's just the way that Elizabeth Berkley was directed to act is so over the top. Tony, she's all pelvic thrust. I mean, she prowls. She's got it. I wonder how she got it. Well, she certainly didn't learn it. She learned it all right, but they don't teach it in any class. Yeah, I'll say it now. Elizabeth Berkley's career did not deserve to die on Showgirls. Because it pretty much did. Her agent dropped her after this movie. Her agent dropped her and it was, I mean, she, she never got back to being at the height of her saved by the bell powers. 
I'm pulling up her IMDb right now, but there's like there's like five credits after Showgirls, which came out in '95. It's a lot of indie movies, a lot of a lot, yeah, um, a lot of TV, a lot of TV. Which I mean, she started with TV, but she was on um, Law and Order a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, she she was still working as late as 2016, so I guess saying her career died is uh, a bit of an exaggeration. But, like, like she, I feel like, gets a lot of the shit from this movie. And people point to the starring role of Elizabeth Berkley and say that that's why this is so bad and that's the person who deserves the flack for this. When, when really, it's just one of the worst scripts I've ever seen put to movie. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time talking about the script and why it doesn't work. And I'm sure we'll spend a lot more, but do you want to talk about what you liked? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I mean, like I, I mentioned, Cause there before, are things we liked. There, there were things I liked. I, I, like I said, this is better than toxic Avenger toxic Avenger. <laughs> we had to literally scrape our mental barrels to figure out something <laughs> we liked about Toxie. We did. We did. It was really hard to figure out what's redeeming about this movie right. and what's redeeming about, about showgirls is okay every other technical aspect other than the script and the direction is wonderful the costuming is perfect we know from the opening shot where we are what's happening who nomi is she's got this sassy jacket on and she holds out her thumb at the side of the road like she doesn't give a flying what so we we know instantly what is going on and the costuming does such a good job of capturing the highs and the lows of what las vegas can be there's a woman whose dress can fly down at command but there is also all these shimmering women in pearls and diamonds and long evening gowns and it's like, oh, this is the dichotomy that is Las Vegas. Right. I mean, the, the costumes better be perfect if you're going to do a movie about Vegas showgirls. And they are. I didn't even think about what a good job the costuming does to inform character choices. And you're right, it totally does. But just yeah. I was purely blown away by how beautiful some of these outfits were. Like, they look amazing. Not even the performance outfits, although they are. I could, like, I was seeing rhinestones glued to people's eyelashes, and that wasn't a thing for, like, another 20 years. But even, like, Crystal Connors, when she's in her quote-unquote casual attire, like, she looks like a star. She looks beautiful. Nomi looks like the cheap punk version of that, because that's kind of what she is. The costuming and the makeup work great. Right, and all of Crystal's clothing has this, sassy swagger that kind of informs her and i i mean i'm not at all a fan of what crystal does as a human but i am so a fan of her acting her character arc her dolly parton-esque wannabe kind of situation that she floats in and out of enough for us to know it is definitely an affectation and we want we're wanted to know that it's an affectation. It's something that she puts on as a way to make herself seem less threatening with her darlings and her, you know, her little Southern charm is definitely not who she really is. Right. There's the moment towards the end where Nomi visits her in the hospital one last time. 
and that's where Crystal reveals that I know you pre I know you pushed me. I know you did this to me and I'm okay with that because how do you think I got where I was by pushing down the woman in front of me? And I don't remember the exact line, but she gives a little monologue there and she gives this really great beat. And it's one of like two moments in the entire movie that like we paused and we went, okay, that's a good bit of acting. Right. But it was probably the only good bit of act. I think you said at that moment, that's probably the only good bit of acting I've seen thus far. Yeah. Yeah. There's Crystal in the hospital and there's uh, James played by Glenn Plummer. He has a moment where like he's confronted with the reality of his situation and the compromising of his dreams. And, and he gives so much with a look that it's like, mm. there's a good moment of acting. So yeah, we counted two in this entire movie that were like acceptable. <laughs> yes. So the plot, the plot follows Nomi as she lives with Molly. She comes to be, she comes to hang out w- at Molly's job a lot, which is this big show, this big Las Vegas show, when she is not spending her time as a dancer at the Cheetah Club. And then as as Nomi works her way up, she becomes not only a dancer at the big show, but she then trips Crystal and becomes the star of the show. And in that transformation, I thought it was so interesting how the script echoed when Crystal was announced the star of the show and when Nomi was announced the star of the yeah, show. Yeah, I caught Because that too. the same... The same dialogue is used to introduce both actresses, but the gentleman who announces Nomi as the new star of the show hesitates just slightly before saying the same things. Right. Well, and even more than that, I I actually didn't catch that. What I caught was the after party interview that like there's one after each of those moments and it's the same like owner of the hotel gushing and gooing and saying that this star is what it represents Las Vegas at the beginning. It's crystal Connors is everything about Las Vegas. She's flashy. She's bright and she's a star. And Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Cause from get go, we understand crystal Connors is, you know, a, a name, a person, a, a real life famous figure in this movie. But later when it's Nomi, he, he almost says the same exact thing verbatim. You know, Nomi yeah. Malone represents everything about Vegas. She's she's beautiful. She's brilliant. She's a diamond in the rough. She's a star, and it's the same. Yeah. It's the same stuff, but Nomi doesn't like Nomi didn't do anything to actually deserve that. Right, and it makes you wonder: Did Crystal, and how long? How long did Crystal have to establish herself as a star before she earned that speech? You know, because we see Nomi's entire transformation prior to that speech. And we're like, is she? Yeah, that was that was the bit I meant where he he says it and he's like, she's everything. Pause. Las Vegas sets up to be and says the same exact stuff. Yeah. Must be weird not having anybody come on you. You mentioned how like when we not when we first meet Nomi, but we we find out very quickly she's a stripper. There's there's something I got to talk about. When we're in the Cheetah Club and and Nomi is getting ready, she uh, she meets like the new girl of the week, who is this beautiful Penny. ditzy blonde. Yeah, she meets Penny, who goes by the stage name of Hope, because of course she does. <laughs> 
um, who's this this beautiful ditzy blonde who doesn't understand that she's there to be a stripper. <laughs> Yeah, she's, like, very offended by certain things. And she's like, gosh, is he serious? We're like, yeah, honey, what did you think you were here to do? Take pretty pictures? Right, it's like, it's... She 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 does something, and it's it's sort of kind of innocent, like oh oh my gosh, I I had no idea I was going to do that. Which you've interviewed to be a stripper, you 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 knew you were going to have to do that, and then yeah, the manager is like, uh, uh you're going to have to blow me by Friday, and he walks away, and she goes, was he serious? Oh yeah, that was it, honey. You're in Las Vegas, in like an off-brand strip club. Yeah. <laughs> What did you think was going to happen? Yeah. That had yeah. to have been one of the real life stories, which I, I didn't know that was a thing going into this. But just throughout the movie, I'm sitting there being like, how is she this dumb that she like yeah. got herself into the situation willingly and then is confused by the walls she surrounded herself with? Or did she get herself into that situation willingly? Like, what was she told leading upwards? That's like, a good what point. was she told about where she was working? What was she told about how the work situation was? I mean, maybe she wasn't told, you're going to work in a library and file books. But maybe she was told, yes, you're going to work in a strip club, but it's all very above board. The manager treats you with such respect, blah, blah, blah. Sure. And then she gets down there and she's like, uh. That's entirely possible. I think that's a very dark, poignant way to take it. And... I'm just thinking about how 20 seconds later she's like stripping with all her might and gusto and like spanking herself and growling and, and looking very into it. And it's like, oh, no, okay. She, she knew. <laughs> well, and that brings another point up is like Nomi says throughout the movie, I'm not a, stri- I'm not a stripper. I'm a dancer. I'm right. not a stripper. I'm a dancer. And she says that so many times that it becomes a theme for Nomi's character as a motivation. Like, her entire motivation throughout the movie is proving herself. Not only proving herself to be self-sufficient and proving herself to be, you know, worth it, but also proving that she's not a stripper, she's a dancer. And she's above it all. And there are so many times throughout the movie where this becomes poignant for Nomi. She breaks up with James because he treats her like she's replaceable. She gets together with Zach because she likes the validity that a man like him says about her. And then she balks at the prostitution offer at the boat show because she's more than that. But at the same time, she does things that are morally reprehensible to make you think these two things don't square. Right. I had trouble while we watched this understanding what was going on. And I I think this is a good way to really examine the problem the script gives us here. Like, Nomi does so much annoying, contrary, just childish, weird, manic crap throughout this movie. She she turns on people at a dime. She is an absolute loose cannon. But at the same time, she's, like, sweet and, and kind of kind of innocent in some ways but kind of like no i know what i'm doing in other ways like when she uh she shows up at the dance audition realizes she's far too overdressed and like strips herself down into next to nothing because she knows that's what needs to happen like Mm -hmm. so the movie tries to give us a twist 
and the movie absolutely presents it as a twist where you find out Nomi's real past and you find out about Polly. Right. That Nomi is Polly, that Polly's father shot her mother, then himself, that Polly has since gone through various drug rings, has been a prostitute, has been in and out of jail, and that she, you know, has done drugs, absolutely. But then we're never given time, Andy. We're never given time to, like, then re-examine the movie's plot from that. Because pretty soon after that realization, the movie's over. Exactly. So you're never given time to be like, oh, that makes sense with that thing. Like, it would have been so much better structured if the twist came halfway through the movie and you were able to re-examine all of Nomi's stuff through a different lens. I completely agree. And like, that was, that was my problem. You know, your husband at, at one point, I just kind of shouted at the movie, like, like, why is she, why is she this way? Why is she doing Why this? does she do what she does? Why does she do that? Why is she such an agent of chaos? And you know, uh, Alex told me she's not, she's an agent of trauma. But, like, that must have been, like, the second or third or however many time he'd seen the movie. Because, right. for me, for a first-timer, understanding her traumatic past, you're exactly right. I don't look back on everything else she's done through the new lens. I just remember the increasingly annoying character we've come to know. Well, and even as someone, you know, I've this is my second time seeing it. The first time seeing it was with a friend in college and watching it over a couple beers and being like, this movie is so stupid. <laughs> and even then, me rewatching it, Nomi's reaction and Nomi's motivation throughout the movie and the way that she acts doesn't make sense for someone who has trauma. Yeah. Like, no trauma victim is just going to go, places, okay, and throw french fries. That is a bad direction for someone who has trauma. The only part that makes sense, the only behavior that tracks with someone who has trauma is when she's playing with her hair very absentmindedly and getting asked, like, full details about her life. And she just, like, looks off in the corner of her eye and makes up a birthday for herself. And she's really quiet and her shoulders slump in and she looks very much like, I'm very uncomfortable in this situation. That's the only moment where I'm like, oh, you're a trauma victim. Sure. Okay. Yeah. But that's the only moment that makes sense. Nice dress. Thanks. I bought it at Versace. I don't want to get into too many circles about just how this, the, the pacing of this movie is so weird. Like the last 20 minutes of the movie are, we get the reveal about Nomi's true past Nomi goes and physically assaults and beats the crap out of her friend's rapist which that scene is like just from a completely different movie from the rest right. of this. All of a sudden we're in the RoboCop universe and I can believe that she, she beats up Andrew Carver. She visits crystal in the hospital and she hits, she, she, the, the, it ends with her hitchhiking her way back out of Vegas with the same guy that she rode in with, with and making guy. this very nice circularity. Which is the only part I liked about the actual script writing was that it was circular from beginning to end. Mm. Yeah, I mean, take what you can get out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> take what you can get out of this crappy, crappy script writing. Yeah, I mean, just this the script is awful. I'm, I'm looking at a picture of Joe Esterhaz right now. And this was a picture taken in 1995. And he looked, even in 1995, he looks like an incredibly old Donald Loge. 
And he's wearing yes. this awful Hawaiian shirt. He's very clearly like in a casino. I'm looking at it. I, I didn't realize this. Um, he is Hungarian. And oh. I, I, I don't want to get into any sort of trap of making a thing about people of other countries made a movie that was really bad. And I'm not trying to draw any line between the fact that neither of these men are American and the fact that this movie is so bad. I'm not going to do that. Mm. Some of my, some of my absolute favorite filmmakers are of Korean or Mexican or German descent, but understanding now that he was born in Hungary and we have Paul Verhoeven who was born in the Netherlands. And both of these people had long careers in their respective countries of birth before coming to America, all of a sudden this makes a degree more sense to me. I'm not sure I track. Can you explain? Like I said before, I feel like Vegas is such a American icon. It is, it, mm. it is an international stage and it is an international playground for the rich and debaucherous, but, but Vegas as a thing was built by American mobsters and it, it, it I don't know. It just feels like American to me. Maybe I'm I'm totally off the rock here. I don't know. Maybe this is a bad no. take. No, I don't think it's a bad take. I think sometimes people from outside our culture are are the very best at examining our culture because they can pick and choose and see, yeah. oh, Americans tend to do this, Americans tend to do that. I don't know necessarily that I would say it's because of their countries of origin. I might say their countries of origin might have affected the way their senses of humor came across. Yeah. Because I keep thinking back to them saying that they read every page of the script and would laugh, and I'm like, I didn't laugh a whole lot at this movie. Yeah, that's that's more what I was trying to say. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Maybe it's just more, it's, it's something gets lost in translation, and the attempt at portraying the American ideal might get lost in translation as well. Yeah, and, and the other part of it, like, like let, let's get into this. This is a phenomenally sexual movie. There is... Oh, uh, yeah. There, there is so much sexual energy going on. It's like, it's, it's, it's Super Saiyan sexual energy. Well, and it's not just heterosexual sex no, either. Yeah. So this is an extremely queer movie. There's lots of lesbianism in this movie. And if that offends you, I would not recommend watching this movie and I would not recommend continuing to listen to this podcast. But I think there's something to be said about how, like, when it, when it was released, it was released as the first NC-17 movie to be mass-released in... In, in cinema. In, thank you. Sorry. Could not for the life of me. Yes. And so cinema managers, like movie theater managers, had to so carefully like police who was going in to see showgirls. They had cinema workers like going in and checking everyone's ID before the movie started. And that whole thing is why... Part of why they cite that it bombed so hard was because people just didn't want to see it in movie theaters because they were like, well, we were policed so much that it just didn't seem like it appealed. But it overwhelmingly excelled at home rentals because also what can people do when they rent it at home? Right. No, and like to to go along that, like, like I watched this movie for the first time in 2019. 
where <laughs> I mean honestly the 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 sexual landscape is different in in oh so many ways. This came out in 1995 and I was it, halfway through the movie it occurred to me of like I need to think about this movie through the lens of 1995 when when don't ask, don't tell was in our military. When don't ask, don't tell was in our militaries. When, when porn was a lot harder to access and find than it is now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like that's the biggest thing. Like, like this is a Hollywood budget softcore porn movie. That's what this this read to me as after watching it, and I was honestly surprised that it didn't at least succeed in this sort of like this skin flick that you're allowed to go see in the movie and not feel dirty and not feel ashamed. This was like, I mean, I mean this, this, this was 1995's 50 shades of gray. Oh, that is a really interesting take. Hot take, hot take, hot take. (laughs) Well, no, I agree with you. And I think this is really progressive for 1995. Like this movie is not only very similar to porn, it's pretty similar to lesbianic porn. Sure. And it was out in movie theaters for people to see. Right. And it's just like, I think that's part of why this movie has succeeded. Because it it found new life as sort of a celebration of queer culture. and Because, I mean, honestly, sure. the power plays, the emotional romantic power plays between Crystal and Nomi are pretty great. Oh yeah. The and, and and maybe even better, like the relationship between Nomi and Molly. Yeah. There's a lot left unsaid yeah. there. <laughs> so I I have recently, before seeing this, had just watched the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror by my older brother's request. Or a recommendation Good rather. Recommendation. Solid recommendation, but also there was some shot in like the very first or second scene of the film where I was like Oh, this is this must be where San Junipero got some of its inspiration from. Because like Molly has this big great hair and Elizabeth Berkeley's Nomi has like really big eyeshadow and there are pastel colors in the background and I'm like, "Oh, this is so fantastic." And there is this sweet, gentle love between them that, like, they kiss each other on the cheek and they hang out and they live in the same, like, two-by-five trailer. With one You're bed. Like, With one bed, what's happening? And it could be, it could be completely innocent. It could be that they just happen to not be home at the same time. But... Yeah, there's... There's a lot unsaid there. Absolutely. And so, like... I don't know, like, this, it's one of the ways that this movie has survived, and it's it's one of the ways that, like, you look at it through the lens of the past, the very problematic past, and you kind of want it to succeed. You said something earlier about how, like, people who are not born in America are often the ones who can best point out its flaws, and I agree with that. I just don't think this happened here. I I think they tried (laughs) very hard and very much failed. Man, everybody got AIDS and shit. And I think, too, like, there's some weirdnesses that just never get squared in this movie. Like, there are some things that 
Like, what the heck is this show that they're putting on? Goddess. There's a Jurassic Park set, and then there's motorcycles later. I don't understand. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guarantee you they didn't think about it beyond what are some great costumes. Like, like how do we, how do we both get this, this sort of fire nude rhinestone look? But also, we really want to do the biker leather daddy BDSM look. Okay, let's just have them both. We'll just we'll just have them both. It'll be great. We're tied up. Okay. Okay. Let's go. That's great. I want us both to be wrong, and I want it to actually be like a really classic Las Vegas show that both of us are completely like absent-minded to, and we both don't know happens. And then later on in our old age you and me and mo and alex will go on a vacation to las vegas and we'll see that show and we'll be like oh that's what it is (laughs) the only vegas show i've ever seen is cirque du soleil so that's entirely possible (laughs) i have never seen a vegas show i've only been to vegas once so and i was 10 so that's not exactly the time you want to go to vegas Uh, this movie like yeah, what else do we... Do we have anything else to talk about? I'm, I'm quite sure we do. Like, I'm just sitting here being like, even Toxic Avenger, like, I walked away from it not liking it, but I didn't walk away from it not <laughs> liking it in quite this way. Like, just... Uh, uh, Interesting. This could have been... This could have been... And I am still surprised that this was not something more. Like, if for no other reason than, like people especially people in the early 90s liked looking at boobs and i didn't know about the nc-17 policing of the theaters thing so i think that absolutely has to do with why this movie commercially bombed so hard and if you make this even as late as 2000 maybe we're talking about it in an entirely different context um but it's now now, very now, this Showgirls movie is now shown at Midnight Movies alongside Rocky Horror Picture Show and other movies like Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and other cult movies. So it has officially reached that cult-level status where it's just shown at Midnight Movie Theater. Right, and that doesn't surprise me because there is so much to make fun of. Like, Elizabeth Berkley is the low-hanging fruit between her, her french fry tantrums... <laughs> She does so much weird stuff with food. There's there's a bit there's a, there's a shot in this movie that lasts maybe 40 seconds and it's just a pan across a Cadillac and sitting on the hood of her Cadillac looking out at the Vegas lights, Nomi's just totally nomming a cheeseburger. How did that not become a Carl's Jr. commercial? Like at least in that I way. feel like it I know, because every Carl's Jr. commercial is just a hot woman eating a burger. So, <laughs> I, I don't know how that's not a Carl's Jr. commercial, but I bet you Carl's Jr. floated it in one of their rooms and they were like, no, that's a little too much. We don't need to be associated with this bad PR. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little too on the nose, Harry. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, like, Elizabeth Berkley is the easy one to make fun of, but every actor in this movie that's why we kept bringing it like like this was paul verhoven's choice to have kyle mclaughlin grab her and go yes (laughs) which 
you know. Like, oh, I was going to make a terrible joke, but then I remembered my mom will listen to this at some point. <laughs> when you have the guy from Twin Peaks acting even weirder than he does in Twin Peaks, you've you've reached a level. Like, Crystal yeah. does st- weird stuff. James has the iconic, everybody does AIDS and shit. Like, so many actors overall just do bizarre things. This is not how actual people talk and i guess that's why they thought this was the comedy. i don't know like like you said this movie is cult this this falls more on the i don't necessarily want it to be cult but it is (laughs) i want it to be because i love that there are movies that are so bad it's good and this is one of those like this when i did watch it the first time with um my college friend meg canistra she told me, she's like, it's just one of those movies that's so campy, it's wonderful. And I think that's still fitting. Like, it's so campy and over the top that you can't help but laugh at it. But that's it. You're not laughing with it. You're laughing at Sure. It. You're mocking it. And it wasn't the movie that I think Verhoeven thought he was making. No, I, I agree. Um, before we, before we get into the, uh, the last couple segments, you, you pointed out something. This movie passes the Bechdel test. With flying pasties. And it does not deserve to. <laughs> <laughs> it, not only does it pass the Bechdel test, it passes the Bechdel test so right. well. Like, there are two named women who are talking about their careers, more than once. Right, and multiple pairings, right? Right. You have Crystal and Nomi talking about their careers. You have Nomi and Molly talking about their careers. You have Nomi and Crystal talking about their art. Ah, it's so infuriating that this passes the Bechdel test because in so many other instances, you're like, is this feminist? Is this not feminist? Because women put each other down just as much as they help each other in this movie. Yeah, which, you know, that's... That's another way for like actual equality is to be able to show women being awful to each other and crippling each other and sabotaging each other, just like men do. <laughs> oh, sad. <laughs> you know what's not sad? Playing what? Sister Music Kevin Bacon. Do you want to go first or shall I? Sure, sure. So I was able to do it uh, in three moves. Oh, nice, nice. So one of the few film roles Elizabeth Berkley had after this movie is she was in a a detective comedy called Curse of the Jade Scorpion with Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt was in Twister with Bill Paxton. And Bill Paxton was in Apollo 13 with Kevin Bacon. Aw, good job, Andy. Yeah. Well, uh, for my Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, I picked Kyle MacLachlan, who played Zach. He was in Blue Velvet with Laura Dern. Blue Velvet is another movie on our list that I'm so excited to get to. Yes. And then Laura Dern was in Novocaine with Kevin Bacon. There you go. Nice. All right. After reading, after reading the summary of Novocaine, I was like, well, shoot, we might have to add this one to our list. So, so I haven't read the summary to Novocaine. What about that makes you say that? Um, so it's a movie about uh, Steve Martin is a prosperous dentist, secure in his neatly ordered 
existence and happily engaged to his ambitious dental hygienist, Laura Dern. But when an alluring new patient, Helena Bonham Carter, steps into his life, this ordinary man discovers how little control he has over his world as he is drawn into a maelstrom of sex, drugs, and murder. Edgy and unpredictable, Novocaine also stars Kevin Bacon and Scott Kahn and marks the future directorial debut of writer David Atkins. Okay. So the reason that I say it should be on our list is because anything with Helena Bonham Carter, I'm like, that can't perform well. That has to be cult. Because I just associate her. Wow. <laughs> Steaming hot tape coming through. I'm hey, sorry. Hey, careful about yourself. <laughs> I know. If I ever meet her in real life, I'll be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. But- I cannot wait to watch Fight Club with you. <laughs> Okay, but I feel like every movie she picks is in some way weird or bizarre or cult because that's who she is as a human. Yeah, I mean, she married Tim Burton. It's it's kind of just her kink. Yeah, fair. <laughs> All right, I'll watch anything with Steve Martin. Yeah, that's so true. He's so wonderful. <laughs> well, awesome. speaking of not being awarded well, do you want to award our Oscars for Showgirls? It's only fair that we do. You know, this movie won, I think it either won or it was nominated for a record 16 Razzie Awards. The Razzies being the anti-Oscars. They go to the worst performances of the year. And I got to give him some props for this. Paul Verhoeven became the first director to accept his award in person. And that's amazing to me. That's wonderful. Yeah, right? That's wonderful. All right. Would you like to go or shall I? I will go. I will start by saying I was originally going to give this movie an Oscar for something very different. But after much contemplation, I have decided instead to give this movie an Oscar for most awkward sex. Yeah. (laughs) Would you like to say why? Elizabeth Berkley looks like she's having a seizure. (laughs) She really... yeah, she's got a pool sex scene with Kyle McLaughlin, which, like, first of all, UTI. Yeah. So, but yeah, seizure's the right word for it, the way she's thrashing around in there. Either seizure or she's possessed, <laughs> a la Exorcist, where, like, her back is bending. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's, that, it just looks painful. Yeah. No, I think that's incredibly fitting. <laughs> Annie, what would you like to award this movie an Oscar for? Uh, I would like to give Showgirls the Oscar for most exposed breasts in a non-pornographic film. Yeah! It kind of comes with the territory, being a movie about Vegas and whatnot, but there's boobies everywhere! There's so many boobs! And I love that you weren't expecting it either, and I could tell, because when you first saw your pair of boobs, you were like, oh... And the look on your face, your eyebrows went to your hairline and your entire neck turned red and it was perfect. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know my neck turned red. It was really cute. (laughs) No, like, I mean, I I don't know what I thought this movie was. I, I, I guess I thought it was a heck of a lot more chaste than it actually is. But like, like... There's stripper boobs, there's dancer boobs, there's Elizabeth Berkley's boobs, because she's both a stripper and a dancer. There's so much 
Like, it's got to be a record. Yeah. If it's not a record, I'm terrified to know what movie has the record. There's a woman whose literal part of her characterization is she has a dress that when she flops her arms to her sides, her dress falls down and shows her breasts. And so much so that her name is Mama Bazoom. <laughs> like, I looked on the IMDb page. They never say that. Her name is Mama Bazoom. I love that they never say that. That's my favorite part of that. <laughs> I know. My second favorite part of that is that that chick's in is, is in Orange is the New Black. Oh, she's the chef, isn't she? She's the cook. Uh, she's, she, I don't think she's the cook, but she's one of the older, she's like the older inmate who's like really nice to Piper when she first gets in there. Oh, okay. I shouldn't guess. I've seen like one episode of the show, so. Eh. Eh. Okay. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so that brings us to one of my favorite parts of the show. You know, I like showgirls. I think you like showgirls. I liked watching it with you and your wife and my husband. Aww. It was nice. Yeah. We had a good time. We did. Um, I'm very interested to find out if we will like the next movie. I am too. Let's give it a whirl. All right. So let's have uh, the Hollywood Crypt show us our next movie through the application of random numbers. I have randomized our list and it is number 110. Really? Okay. Uh, Number 110 on our list is the 2007 horror comedy Teeth. I'm so excited. Is that the movie where there's a vagina with teeth in it? That is the movie about a girl whose vagina has teeth in it. I'm so excited. (sighs) (laughs) You are not. I have watched this movie within like the past three months. My wife showed it to me for the first time. And you know what? It's it's almost thematically appropriate that it is coming with showgirls because it is also tone deaf in its uh, heavy handedness. <laughs> no, you sound so disappointed. Do you want to give it a little bit of a break? Do you want to pick another movie and come back to this oh, one? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I will bear through it. <laughs> there's actually a lot I can talk about with teeth. Okay. But I'm just sitting here being like, we're going to go through like three movies in a row where it's going to be like, like Starship Troopers and then Texas Chainsaw and Smoke and Aces and Boondock Saints. We're like all of my, all of my beloved super violent movies are out there waiting for me. And I just can't wait till we do like three of them in a row. Well, Texas Chainsaw Massacre will have to be Alex, but um, I am down for some Boondock Saints. I can't wait for Boondock Saints. I'm so excited. In any case, Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time for a movie that'll make you think twice about flossing. (sighs) (laughs) You're welcome. 2007's Teeth. (laughs) Stephanie Johnson. I've been Andy Bowell. Between his hair and his facial, he kind of looks like Alex if Alex were white. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
please cut that. Please cut that. My husband will be so mad at me. <laughs> now I have to decide choices. No! <laughs> My marriage is in your hands. What can we say in the closing about teeth? Uh, where you'll think twice about flossing. Oh my god. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>